So if you're enjoying, appreciating, benefiting from this series of short talks by Padma Vajra on the life and liberation of Padma Sambhava, him channeling these lightning flashes from the blue beyond, then please do consider making a donation to Padma Loka. We're still in uh, uncertain financial times. This year we lost our main source of income, uh, our retreat income, and even though people are starting to return to Padma Loka now, uh, our costs have considerably gone up. Uh, given the various measures that we have to put in place. So although we've benefited enormously from people's generosity uh, throughout the year, we really need to keep that stream of generosity flowing. So do please consider giving what you can. You can do that by following the link that's attached to this video or beneath in our YouTube channel or visiting our website and making a one-off donation or taking out a monthly standing order. Thank you. Boom. Hear, gods and genies, the instructions of Padma. Incarnation without equal in the universe, free of natal stain, I am the diamond born of the lake, Tsokye Dorje. Nothing can injure my body, nor can death overtake me. Terrible is suffering in the whirl of the six classes of beings and mental tumult pervades the short life of the violent ones. King Trisongdetsa erecting a temple is like placing a victory banner. If in Tibet the teaching of the Holy Dharma is established, those who dislike the genies need depend on them no longer. The great Indian pandit being invited to the feast is as one bringing a lamp into the shadows. If in Tibet the holy dharma of happiness is spread and the genies depart, people will depend on them no longer. Therefore I accept the offer and the gift of the earth. King Trisondetsen, carry out your intention. Build your temple. The spirits will help your work. Padma the enchanter does not break his word. Padmasambhava flew away into the clear sky and everywhere the shadow of the diamond hero reached the 21 non-human adepts, the 12 goddesses of the earth and darkenies of the snow mountains, the ones of the shale mountains and the gods and the spirits Gandharva, Kumbanda, Nangendra and Yaksha and the deities of the eight great planets and the 28 constellations gathered earth and stones from the mountains and valleys. 60,000 workers laid out the clay, but before a tower was erected, they became fatigued and gave up. Mustering the spirits under his dharma, the guru entrusted the work to them. And Brahma and Indra were seen preparing the clay. The four great kings acted as overseers. And male and female demons and all the gods and genies, uttering exclamations, put the clay in place. By day, the men of flesh and blood were working on the building. By night, the gods, the ogres and the eight classes of spirits were raising the edifice. So this is from Canto 62, describing the building of Samye Monastery. There is no longer opposition from the gods of Tibet. 
having been bound by Padmasambhava, enchanted and fascinated by Padmasambhava, having given themselves to him completely, they now want to be involved in the great project of building this great temple of the Dharma. They give their full support. I love that line. By day, the men of flesh and blood work. By night, the spirits work. They work in the darkness. It represents the full involvement of all the forces of the unconscious in the creative activity of really living the Dharma life within ourselves and outside of ourselves. And I've seen this many times in individuals, in, in people practicing the Dharma. They're doing well, they're getting on with their Dharma practice, but you feel something is missing, a vitality and energy is not involved in their Dharma life. And then they take something on at the right time, a greater responsibility. They take something on, they start to make something, they start to run something, they start a centre, they develop a centre, they take a bit more of a lead, or if not, they realise that they have an important part to play, a real part to play in the running of things, in the activity of the Sangha. It might not necessarily be to do with actually physical, do, physically doing things. Maybe they realise that their meditation, their study, has a bigger part to play in the activity of the Sangha. But it might well be that they take something on externally. It's a bit of a challenge, a bit of a leap. It exposes them. There are all kinds of reactions inside them, outside of them. But then stronger energies begin to surge and begins to enrich what they're doing. Aggression becomes positive momentum. Criticism, carping criticism, becomes an incisive seeing of what is needed, cutting through confusion. The needs of others are seen, becomes strong bonds of real friendship with those others. Their demons become gods. Their demons start to enrich the mandala of the Dharma, both within and outside. All Dharma practice becomes more vibrant because so much more of them is, ab is available. So much more of them is available in meditation. So much more of them is available to them in study. So much more of is available to them in devotion. So much more is available to them for life itself. To put it very simply, Dharma life really begins when re you realise that you love, you really love the project of the Sangha that you are involved with. And you will do anything to make it better, to make it last to make it stronger, richer, more full for everybody involved. You're prepared to do things you never wanted to do, you never dreamed of doing. You're pre prepared to extend yourself in new ways, in new directions, go out of your way to, the, to care for the people who are involved. When there is that kind of love, that full identification with your Dharma work, 
then the gods really will get involved. They will want to be involved. They love it when they see someone doing that. They will give the heart of their lives. They will guard your treasures, the treasures of your work. They want to serve people like that. When the greatly precious Guru Padmasambhava performed the consecration of Samye, after spending seven days in the attainment of the Vajradhatu, the diamond plane, he threw flowers on the threefold roof of the monastery. All the images of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas and other deities immediately became alive and wandered out of the temples, brandishing their implements, the implements that they were holding. After circumambulating the stupas, they returned to their temples. Thus begins the description of Padmasambhava's consecration of Samye, of the different temples that made up the great monastery. More wonders follow as he blesses with flowers, now this temple and now that temple. Heavenly music sounds, rainbows appear in the sky, sweet perfumes pervade the air. The Buddha images begin to teach the Dharma. The sun and moon appear simultaneously. The temple is alive. It's throbbing with the life of the Dharma. Padmasambhava not only has the magical ability of transforming the gods, more importantly perhaps, he is in direct communion with the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and all the deities that embody the highest reality. They live in him. And because they live in him, he can bring them alive for others. This is what the true guru does. The true guru is our intermediary between us here in the mundane and the conditioned world, the sangsara and the transcendental, nirvana, the unconditioned. The true guru operates freely between both worlds. He perfumes each world. He is perfumed by each world and he moves effortlessly between each world. The guru, in that sense, is like the angel, the messenger of the divine, reaching out to us, meeting us where we can be met and introducing us to the Buddhas. The guru's heart is in two worlds. It is with the Buddhas he can see the Buddhas, he knows the names of the Buddhas, knows their sounds, their mantras, knows them directly, has vision of the Buddhas, touches the Buddhas, smells the Buddhas, tastes the Buddhas. And yet he is with us, he comes to us, he's among us, he's one of us. That's why gurus, real gurus, can seem so strange to us. They are of this world, familiar to us, and not of this world. Padmasambhava's expression is said to be a kind of wrathful smile. That doesn't really say what it is. He's frowning, apparently. He has all the majesty, the sublimity of reality. And yet there is this tender, tender, kindly gaze and smile. And sometimes he appears as a child, sometimes as an androgynous youth, sometimes as a man in his prime, sometimes 
as a great wrathful deity. Yes, we can relate to the gurus, and yet they seem so out there, so strange, defying categorization, which some people can find incredibly disturbing. Who is this person? They don't seem to fit our usual categories. We want so much to categorise, to label. There's a poem of Bantis called People Like Things Labelled. Gurus, real gurus, who might even reject the name guru because it's so soiled. They make the Buddhas live for us. And we have to invoke the guru principle to make the Buddhas live for us. Here in this beautiful shrine room, I'm looking out on wonderful paintings of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Dakinis and gurus and the great Buddha image himself, Padmasambhava images made with wonderful colours, so vivid and so lovely, beautifully done for us by Aloka. They are alive, animated by him for us, but we have to keep animating them through the intensity of our practice. That is how we consecrate them. They are the flowers of our consecration, the intensity of our practice, our love of the Dharma. And so they change. They change for us over the years. These images have changed for me as we practice, as we go towards them, to meet them, and as they come nearer to us, to meet us, things change. I'm often noticing things in here that I've never ever noticed before, which are teaching me things, showing me things. Shrine rooms, whether here or your shrine room at home, need to be continuously consecrated with our practice, with our flowers of love. Keep your shrine rooms alive.